Hi, Blue Wire listeners. I'm Greg Olson. I'm excited to partner with Blue Wire to bring you TE1, a podcast where I interview the tight ends who have revolutionized the position. Listen in as I have raw, in-depth conversations with the all-time greats like Shannon Sharp, Tony Gonzalez, Travis Kelsey, and George Kittle. We'll explore how the tight end position has changed over the last 60 years and what it takes to be the very best. Subscribe to TE1 from Blue Wire Studios today so you're ready for the August premiere. On this week's episode of the podcast, we're talking about World Cup minnows and one of international soccer's forgotten golden generations. Are we talking about a little Viking thunderclap? Uh, close, but warmer than that. Buckle up, this is Deadball Brothers. Welcome to Deadball Brothers, a weekly podcast about soccer and history with a healthy dose of stupidity. Brought to you this week by DealDash and BetOnline.ag, and as always, a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Excited because I hit the record button this time. You did. Uh, I went really, really hard and was like into the intro, and I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And then Drew starts waving frantically, and I stop, and he says... I missed the record button. I guess I didn't even have to wave because (laughs) we weren't, the mic wasn't hot. I know. (laughs) Yeah, you were being (laughs) quiet. (laughs) Oh, man, this is your favorite podcast with your favorite dumb brothers, those being myself, Adam Whitaker Snavely, joined as always by my real life brother. Drew Snavely, um, Manchester United fan once again. And uh, I mean, I guess the, the Sancho news isn't official yet, but. All signs are pointing to to him joining United, and that is very exciting for me. I think it's good news for both of us. Yes. You're getting a lot of money. As a Dortmund fan, I'm getting a lot of money, and Gio Reyna is about to get a lot more minutes. That is true. So it's a win-win-win for fans of Manchester United, Borussia Dortmund, and United States Men's National National Team. Yeah, exactly. Hard hard yes. Hard yes. Um, I'm just glad that uh, United seem to have figured out that Yes, Dortmund are holding all the cards. Yeah, there's no compromise there. <laughs> Zero compromise. I mean, I feel like there was a little bit of compromise because I think at one point it was reported that Dortmund's Dortmund's price was like 150 million, and it seems to be this is going to be closer to a hundred million baseline price, with probably this is what they did for Usman Dembele yeah. at Barcelona, performance based incentives. incentives yeah. If he hits certain performance markers, then the price goes up. Yeah, it's uh, it helps out the club if the player flops. Um, you still spend a crap ton of money yes. on said player, but at least you're not spending like thirty million, forty million more than what you could possibly be spending. Yeah, you know, it's a little uh, a little parachute, a little safety net. There are holes in the parachute. There but are holes in the parachute. It's a parachute that ascends incredibly fast. You might die, but there's a chance that you'll survive. You'll probably live, but both your legs are broken. Oh, all your bones in your body all are broken. Your bones. <laughs> Dude, that's why I, I watched some video where there was basically a what to do if both your parachutes fail what? kind of thing. <laughs> and it was the whole the whole thing was try to somersault it out. No, no, I mean, <laughs> no, straight up, it was like, you are probably going to die, but there's a chill, still a chance you could live, and here's how. And the whole thing was avoid water 
at all costs. Like, look for something that isn't water, preferably, like, trees. Yeah. Um, oh, brutal. And you are going to land feet first. And you're going to try to roll as best you can. And then the whole thing is, like, you're about to break every bone in your body. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh. I was like, I remember watching it, and I just said... Yeah, that's why I don't skydive. Not <laughs> <laughs> worth it. I don't. I don't ever want to think about any of this. <laughs> no, which is kind of like why I'm a Borussia Dortmund fan because we almost never make the super high flying big flop deals. Mm. The biggest flop I can think of that Dortmund has made in the last five to ten years is Andre Schurla. I mean, and we paid like I think forty million for him. Yeah. Which is a lot of money for what we got from Andre Sherlock, which was yeah, not a lot. Yeah, not a lot. But not bad. Not bad not, compared not to a lot of people. Yeah. First and foremost, FC Barcelona. Barcelona. Oof, man. Dembele we was... Dembele, Coutinho. Griezmann. Griezmann. I mean, Griezmann, it's like he's still... They could sell, good. They could sell him for as much as they yes, bought him for. Yes, that is a thing. Griezmann is still good. Griezmann's yes. not a flop, per se. But Griezmann plays the same position that Messi plays. Yeah. And so he's just completely redundant in their system. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean... That's a problem. It is a problem. Especially when you're spending 100 million euros on Uh a player who's... Just to play them out of position. Yeah. It's pretty brutal. It is. So anyway, Drew, you're happy because Manchester United is getting Sancho. So happy. I'm happy because Borussia Dortmund is getting money that they'll then turn around to spend about... 30 to 40 million dollars on on some proven Bundesliga middle of the pack kind of player. Heck yeah. And we will continue to finish in second place to Bayern Munich. <laughs> and that's just that's just the way of the world. That's, that's just how it goes. That's how the Bundesliga works. In Germany. Uh, Borussia Dortmund's not minnows. However, they're not uh, they're not the biggest fish in the pot. Not not the biggest, but uh, some of the most exciting to watch in the pot. True. Very flashy. Not to say that minnows aren't exciting. No, no, no. no. Because I have a story today for you. Oh. Of a very exciting minnow okay. in the grand scheme of the World Cup. Yes. Drew. Let's get it. When you think of World Cup minnows. Yes. Who comes to mind? Uh, I mean, you think of Costa Rica in their run in 2016. 2014. 2014. 2016 2016 was the Summer Olympics. Summer Olympics. 2014. um, I mean, Iceland had a good run in the Euro. They... They qualified for the World Cup. They qualified for the World Cup. Um, But in recent memory, Costa Rica um, advancing from a group with England, Italy, and uh, Uruguay, Uruguay, yeah, the group of death. Yep, when everybody had written off Costa Rica, made it to the quarterfinals, almost made it to the semifinals because they they went to penalties with the Netherlands. That was a really good year for Concacaf. It was because, a really good year for Concacaf because the U.S. almost made it past Belgium. Almost completed that. That if Chris Wondolowski or if Clint Dempsey finished that goal. In extra time, where he was one on one with the keeper, off of like the set piece routine. I thought that was Wondolowski that was one on one with the keeper. He was one on one with the keeper. It was at the end of regulation, mm. which would have been a win if he had finished it. Yes, yes. But there were a few. Yeah, there were a few times, and yeah. we can agree that the U.S. was kind of doomed to failure when Josie Altador got hurt, and it became clear that the next option of having 
Aaron Johansson up front. Yeah. And hoping that Michael Bradley could do something as a number 10 was <laughs> not working not, out. Not great. No. That, that World Cup was so weird for the U.S. because we only won one game. But yes. it was kind of viewed as a success. <laughs> <laughs> Great success. Great success. <laughs> we got out of the we got out of the group stages, and yep. that's about all you can ask you know, for. What can you do? At that <laughs> point? We were with Ghana and Portugal and Germany, so I mean, it was it was a nice World Cup to remember to sure. look back on and sure. forget about twenty. Forget about all that and the fact that Brad Davis was on the team. Yes. Oh gosh. Now, back to World Cup minutes. Yeah. Obviously, Iceland is the smallest country that has ever qualified for the World Cup, just north of a population of 300,000. I believe I have said this on the podcast before, but my favorite small Iceland fact is, More the, sheep. is the fact that they have a dating app oh, in Iceland yeah, yeah, yeah. where you bump your phone together with your date. And it does a quick ancestry check to make sure you're not too closely related. <laughs> Here's another fun fact for um, you Iceland fanatics out there. Uh, they have more sheep than they do people on Iceland. So It is a fun fact. It is a fun fact. I had so much fun listening to that fact. <laughs> the next smallest countries had a bit more than a million people living in them. So quite a jump up from 300,000. Yeah. Trinidad and Tobago in okay. 2006. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember that specifically because they gave England a little bit of a scare yes. in the group stage. And Northern Ireland in 1954, oh. which feels like it barely counts because it's 1954. Yeah. Um, they also qualified again in the 80s. Okay. But at that point, they had more like closer to 2 million. So I only include the 1954. Gotcha. Because after them... As far as I can tell, the next smallest country to ever qualify for a World Cup is Kuwait. Okay. In their only World Cup appearance in 1982. I did not know that Kuwait qualified for the World Cup. They That's did. impressive. Mm-hmm. Just once. Let's wind things back a little bit for Kuwait, though. Because okay. this, is, this is who we're talking about yeah. this whole time. And their team and the 1982 World Cup deserves to be more than a footnote in history, I think. Kuwait, during the 70s and 80s, actually became something of a powerhouse in the Asian soccer scene. You might not have noticed or heard of that golden generation in Kuwaiti soccer, and you might also ask, if they were such a powerhouse, why'd they only show up in one World Cup? <laughs> True. <laughs> a fair question. <laughs> that would be because until 1986, the entire Asian region was only allotted one qualification spot. Ah. The qualification battles for this one spot were understandably very tense. Yes. And it resulted in sort of a carousel of Asian nations qualifying for the World Cup. Kuwait, Iran, Israel, because back in the day, Israel qualified with the Middle East. Okay. North Korea, South Korea, and the Dutch East Indies in 1938. Okay. Which would become Indonesia. Did Japan not have a team at the time? Soccer was not big in Japan. We talked about this. We talked about this with the, the anime, Captain Tsubasa. Oh, Because yeah, soccer right. in Japan was not very big until the late 90s, gotcha. starting into the 2000s. Gotcha. Japan almost qualified for the 94 World Cup. They lost the final of an Asian qualifier and missed out. I believe they lost to Saudi Arabia. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. So... They, yeah, they did not appear in a World Cup until 2002. Japan? 
Either 98 or 2002. I actually, I think it might have been 98. Um, I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. 2002, they co-hosted with South Korea. So they definitely uh, were in there. Okay, but I yeah. think they qualified for the 1998 World Cup. Anywho, they were not in there. All of those teams appeared in the World Cup one after another before finally, in 1986, two Asian teams played in the World Cup at the same time for the very first time. And that was South Korea and yet another debutante, Iraq. What I'm trying to say here is that qualifying for the World Cup out of Asia was possibly the most difficult place in the world to qualify at the time. Yeah. It was very, very hard. Like, the quality of the game isn't as high, but because there's just one spot. Yeah. And because there's no actual, like, dominant power in the region. Yeah, Like, for a long time, there was also only one spot to qualify from CONCACAF. Mexico. But Mexico was so far and away better than so many other teams that they were almost always winning that spot yeah one year jamaica got in and obviously when they started opening it up to more teams then you have people like the united states costa rica costa rica honduras trinidad and tobago a time or two yeah yeah so you 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 get those teams kuwait however wasn't any pushover in the region either in 1970 kuwait won the inaugural gulf cup a competition between the eight member nations of the arab gulf cup football federation Okay. Those nations being Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Iraq, United Arab Emirates, Oman, Bahrain, Yemen, and Kuwait. Nailed it. So everybody in that little peninsula, basically. They would go on to win seven of the first ten editions of the tournament from 1970 to 1990. And still hold the record for most Gulf Cup wins at ten, with Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Iraq all tied for second with three apiece. Oh, wow. This so, is like the, the Yankees and everybody else. A little of bit. Of championships. Yeah, they, they dominate that competition. Yeah. Historically. Kuwait also ran all the way to the final of the 1976 Asian Cup. They qualified for the Olympics in 1980, where they made it to the quarterfinals before getting bounced by the Soviet Union. And then they won that year's Asian Cup on home soil as well. So this is a long run of very, very successful soccer for Kuwait. Yeah. And this is also, I will say, with the Olympics, the Olympics did not transition to a under-23 event until the 90s. So they were actually like, it was weird because it was, still wasn't like a FIFA event, uh-huh. but there was a little, bit, a little bit more prestige kind of associated with it. Yeah. Finally, obviously, they qualified for the World Cup for the first time in the country's history in 1982. All this together, this run from 1970 to 1982, it's pretty much a dynasty. Like, that's a really, really good string of results, all things considered. How did they do this? Well, for starters, the guy running their soccer program was a sports freak who wanted to see his country succeed on the international level, as well as other Middle Eastern countries as well. Sheikh Fahad al-Ahmed al-Jaber al-Sabah, or Prince Fahad, as we'll call him for short. Prince Fahad, yeah. Prince like Fahad, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, Great pronunciation, though, I, I, I will say. Thank you. Did you practice I, that? I practiced in the mirror? a few pronunciations. Yeah. Ironically, I think I'm going to get the Kuwaiti names better than the French names. Okay, yeah. And that's France is coming up. Just so you know, listener, we're going to get to some French people. Spoiler. Spoiler alert. Prince Fahad, as we'll call him was the younger half-brother of the emir, or the ruler of Kuwait. So he is royal family. He was also the president of the country's football association, as well as 
here's another laundry list of things. The president, the president of the Kuwait Olympic Committee, the president of the Kuwait Basketball Federation, the president of the Asian Handball Federation, the president of the Asian Games Federation, the president of the Olympic Council of Asia, vice president of the International Handball Federation, a member of the International Olympic Committee for a decade, and a member of the IOC Executive Board for four of those years. Dude liked to sports. I'm sure he earned all of those positions too. You know, well, okay. <laughs> oh, right. You didn't have to go that. I mean, okay, yeah, that's fair. Um, I get it. That's probably a fair assessment. Fahad knew that he had a golden generation of players coming into their prime in the late 70s and early 80s. So he went out and got the best coaches he could to lead them. Two Brazilians emerged. Okay. The first was Mario Zagallo, the man with the record for the most World Cup victories in general of any player. He has two as a player, one as a manager. He won in 1970, Pele's last World Cup. Okay. He managed the team. Yeah. And one as an assistant. Oh. He was an assistant to Scolari in 2002 wow. when Brazil won. So four of their five championship teams. That's he pretty was, he was impressive. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's extremely impressive. Yeah. That's why it's a record. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's why records exist. That's how how those things go. (laughs) He was followed by Carlos Alberto Pereira, who during his career managed a ton of international sides. Brazil, Ghana, Kuwait, in addition to Saudi Arabia, South Africa, and the United Arab Emirates, and a ton of club teams, most of them in Brazil, such as Fluminense, Sao Paulo, Santos, Internacional, Corinthians, but also a couple inter- uh, international sides, I guess. Sides outside of Brazil. Yeah. Valencia. Oh, wow. Fenerbahce. Okay. And most importantly, the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars. What the heck, man? Let's what get a, it. What a resume this dude has. A brand so well thought out that they put a forward slash in the name. <laughs> I always thought that was so funny whenever I saw Metro Stars game on TV as a kid. It would... The one team would be, you know, like a regular, if they were playing Miami, it would just say MIA kind yeah. of thing. And then the other side, New York slash New Jersey. It's so dumb. <laughs> oh, gosh. Now, these were some extremely reputable coaches for a country as small as Kuwait, obviously. But they did the trick. Kuwait was historically successful under them and rode their streak all the way to the World Cup. At their first World Cup, Kuwait were the clear underdogs in their group, which also consisted of Czechoslovakia, England, and France. Oh, wow. Rough. Yeah. (laughs) But they did manage to grab a one-to-one draw with Czechoslovakia and their talisman, Antonin Panenka. Yes. Who we've also covered on this podcast. yeah. (laughs) Courtesy of a 25-yard thunderbolt from Faisal Aldakil, Kuwait didn't just manage a draw, though. They put together several free-flowing counters and by far created more chances to score than Czechoslovakia did, who only took the lead in the first half thanks to a pretty soft penalty. Ooh. It was a. It looked a little divey. Yeah. It looked a little divey to me in the context of watching soccer today. Yeah. Let alone in the 80s when you could just murder somebody on the field and the ref was like, play on. (laughs) Standard foul. (laughs) No card. (laughs) You know? Yeah. You had people like Vinnie Jones and other maniacs just running around absolutely 
lopping people's limbs off. You can say it, dude. The players today are soft. The play, the players today are soft. <laughs> We're like no more hard men. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, Kuwait could really, really play, and they proved it in their opener. And that wasn't the only way Kuwait grabbed people's attention. They also had a team mascot, which was a camel, accompanied by a banner slash slogan that read, Our Camel is a Winner. (laughs) This was apparently prompted by a World Cup qualifying match in New Zealand, where the Kiwi fans had held up a banner that said, Go back to your camels. No. Yeah. Oh, my God. That sucks. Yeah, it's super racist. Suck. Yeah. Kuwait won that match two to one. Good. Suck it, New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> think, you're all good, think you got the coronavirus all under control. Well, in the 80s, you were some dicks. We've got receipts. Yeah, we got, we got these receipts. <laughs> Their next game, however, was against France. And Kuwait would have to stand up to the full force of one of the best teams in the world. It was there that Kuwait's golden generation faced what was perhaps their biggest ever test. And it was also there that Kuwait made its most famous mark on the game. A mysterious whistle, a prince on the field, and all hell breaking loose. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the podcast, brought to you for the first time by DealDash. Drew. Yeah. Have you ever heard of DealDash.com? I have not. Well, it's the best, most honest bidding site where you can win things that you'd never expect at a price you'd never believe. They have over 1,000 auctions every day on electronics, appliances, beauty products, home decor, and even cars. Here's how it works. It's like an auction, but every item starts at $0 and only goes up one cent every time you bid. The kicker is that auction clock restarts after just 10 seconds. That means every time you bid, everyone else has 10 seconds to answer, or the item is yours. Now, if you go ahead and buy now, DealDash is offering our listeners an extra 100 free bids upon sign-up on top of their other discounts. Go to DealDash.com and use the offer code BROTHERS or DealDash.fm slash BROTHERS. That's D-E-A-L-D-A-S-H dot F-M slash BROTHERS for your free sign-up bonus with DealDash. Thank you so much to DealDash for sponsoring us. And also this week, thank you, as usual, to BetOnline.ag. Sports are coming back and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events Major League Baseball is finally kicking off this week, and there's no better place to start wagering than our exclusive partners, BetOnline. Check out all the odds, futures, and props to bet on, all available 24-7. And with the return of sports, BetOnline sat down with former pro players Eddie George, Harold Reynolds, and seven-time NBA champ Robert Ory. See what they had to say on what it'll be like playing without fans in a series they're calling Fandemic. Visit betonline.ag for all your odds and up-to-date sports news. Remember to use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Thank you so much to both DealDash and to betonline.ag for sponsoring all of our Blue Wire podcast pods this week. 
And as always, if you are interested in supporting Deadball Brothers specifically more this week, the best, most important thing that you can do is leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people. It doesn't really take that much time or effort to do so. So if you haven't done it, we would really, really appreciate you doing that. If you want to follow our social medias, you also have the opportunity to do so at DeadballPod everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We have an email account at deadballpod at gmail.com where you can contact us. And if you're interested in any Deadball Brothers merchandise, we have a Teespring store, the link to which will be in the description below. But thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. And for now, now it's time to get back to the story. Adam, you left us all on the edge of our seats with that uh, first half finale, the first act finale. Uh, there's a prince on the field, all hell's about to break loose. There's, I'm forgetting other parts. <laughs> <laughs> There's a magician out in at half field waving his wand. I don't know. Drew, I uh, I left you and the listeners on something that we in the biz like to call a cliffhanger. Ooh, yes. And much like Sylvester Stallone in that movie, we're climbing up onto that cliff. We're not falling today. We're not falling today. <laughs> we're getting back up. I've actually never seen Cliffhanger, so no. Sylvester Stallone dies in that movie. I have no idea. Nobody tell us. Yeah. Just let us live in this fantasy world that we've constructed for ourselves. And that's that on yes. that. Yes, that's that on Period. that. Period. Period. All right. France. Kuwait. 1982 World Cup. France weren't quite the inevitable force they are today in the 80s. In fact, they actually lost their opening match to England 3-1. to Okay. Which is a pretty commanding victory for England. Yeah. But while Kuwait might have proven themselves as worthy World Cup opponents in their opening match, the French were still considered favorites by a wide margin in the matchup. And their squad was headlined by one of the greatest French players of all time, now disgraced former UEFA president, Zinedine Michel Zidane. Platini. <laughs> Such an idiot. Zinedine Zidane. As a player, pl- or I, should, I should say the, the proper French pronunciation, Platini. Platini. <laughs> As a player, Platini was one of the best midfielders alive in the 80s, and he won three consecutive Ballon d'Ors in 1983, 1984, 1985. Not bad. The first half hour of the game remained deadlocked at nil-nil, but the French clearly had the better attack on the day. In the 31st minute, the floodgates opened. A free kick from Bernard Jean-Genie went up and over the wall before dipping into the top corner. Twelve minutes later, Platini found the ball in the box before deftly finishing. And three minutes later after that, France were on the board yet again as Didier... Dang it, I forgot to look up this name and I have no idea how to pronounce (laughs) it. His first name is Didier. His last name is spelled Six. S-I-X. Okay. And I know... Sioux. C. Didier C, maybe? Sioux. We're going to go with C, but I don't know, because French is not my language. No, it's not. Much better with Spanish and its derivatives. (laughs) Didier, first name, first name basis, (laughs) raced past a a high Kuwait back line, controlling a long ball with his chest and volleying home from the top of the box without letting the ball touch the ground. 
The 17-minute period was devastating. Yeah. France entered halftime up three goals to none. Not great. It's one thing to give up two goals right before halftime. Uh-huh. But giving up the third goal and the way that they, like, the third goal, watching it, it's just one of those, like, we're better statements. Yeah. Because it kind of was just one of those perfect, there's a little chip through ball, then he raced in behind and popped it up with his chest and took it on the full volley. It's one of those goals where you probably score that against every team. It just happens to be against a, a lesser side. Yeah. And, and, it, and it just feels kind of backbreaking yeah. a little bit to score a goal of that quality going up 3 nothing right before halftime. I'm yeah. pretty sure it was actually stoppage time of the first half, I want to okay. say, that it occurred in. So, yeah. yeah, really, really tough goal and tough time to give it up. Yeah. Coming out of the halftime break, France settled back a bit, comfortable with their lead, understandably, until things got a little interesting in the 78th minute. Okay. With a free kick 20 yards from goal, Kuwait surprised France by playing a ball on the ground to Abdullah Al-Balushi, who finished at the near post running into the box with the ball. It was just kind of one of those quick, set the ball down and dink, you're in on goal. You love to see that. A little little nice, I don't even know if I would call it a routine. Yeah. It was just one of those, you're there, we're going to pass to you kind of deals. Kuwait were still two goals down. But a comeback wasn't outside the realm of possibility. Stranger things have happened yes. in soccer. The Kuwait comeback, however, was put on ice only a few minutes later when midfielder Ale, this name also sucks, Ale Jerez, okay, I'm pretty sure, scored the dagger for France. Or did he? Oh. Jerez's goal was kind of an odd one because as he was played through, the entire Kuwait back line stopped and stood up almost simultaneously. They all stopped playing and they just kind of like stood up and Jerez kind of comes through and finishes yeah. and, and celebrates. Yeah. And the Kuwait players are confused. Those same defenders immediately went over to referee Miroslav Stupar of the Soviet Union to argue their case. They claimed a whistle for offside had gone off, and thus the entire team had stopped playing, allowing Chechez to a completely uncontested shot on goal. On at least one video I found of this play, you can clearly hear something of like a phantom whistle. Yeah. I don't know if there was a whistle. I don't know if somebody had one in the stands. Probably somebody happened, in the stands. But there's clearly a noise yeah. that you can hear. And you hear it, and you just see all the Kuwait defenders stop playing immediately. Yeah. And then the French guy just goes in and scores. And they're all... Everybody's mad, except for France. They're, they're pumped. They're happy. Yeah. <laughs> Understandably. <laughs> now... The Kuwait defenders, obviously, arguing their case with the referee. The referee waved off their protestations and motioned for play to continue. And this is where things get messy. Okay. Because if you looked up into the stands, as the Kuwait players were doing, you could see Prince Fahad looking down from his box and motioning for the players to leave the pitch. Oh, gosh. Which they did. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You listened to the prince. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Refusing to retake the field to the confusion of the French side and the referee. 
And that's when Prince Fahad left his box, made his way down the stadium steps, and marched directly onto the field. Oh, yeah. First talking to his players, and then walking out to talk to the referee. Obviously. Yeah, he has every right to do that. <laughs> Clearly. He's earned it. This is a big no-no. Yeah. <laughs> this is not the thing. I, I can't even imagine this happening in today's game. Oh, no. At all. But the Spanish security officers kind of just let him walk onto the field. <laughs> You're like, I'm and not I, getting paid enough for no, this. No, <laughs> they literally, they were just kind of like, they were all kind of hovering around him. <laughs> yeah. And they're watching him walk up. And he looks at them and then goes over his players and then walks up to the ref. And they're all kind of flanking him, <laughs> looking at each other, but not doing anything. Just like, yeah. Yeah, he's going on the field. <laughs> all right, guys. For the record, the American equivalent of this, first of all, is the United States men's national team qualifying for the World Cup. And then having, uh, like, Eric Trump come down. <laughs> True. From the stance to argue with a referee, which is, a like, a new fresh hell that I had never yeah. before considered. Yeah. I don't think anyone knows exactly what was said between Prince Fahad and Stupar. But after a couple minutes, Fahad left the field of play and Stupar waved off the French goal. Interesting. Giving Kuwait a free kick for an offside call. Nice. So the 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 uh, the chronology of events: France score, Kuwait players argue, Kuwait players then refuse to take the field as France is already on their side of the field, lined up for kickoff. Yeah. Kuwait prince comes down, talks to the referee. The referee changes his mind, takes the goal off of the scoreboard. It's a power move. I, how, how many how many uh, leaders of nations uh, would have the gall to do something like that? Well, he wasn't the leader of the nation. Well, he, he was the half-brother of the leader of the well, nation. Well, I mean, leader of a federation, of all the f- sports federations. Oh, no, no, true. <laughs> you right, you right, you right. Um, the French were furious. Yeah. And French manager Michel Hidalgo then tried to storm onto the pitch to have his own private conversation. But he's not a Stubar. prince. Only to be repelled by the same Spanish authorities that had <laughs> let Prince Fahad onto the field moments earlier. Yes. Exactly. He ain't a prince. He's like, stopping you isn't going to create any geopolitical conflict. <laughs> it's true. Somebody had to say it. A light shoving match between the coach and security ensued. Oh my gosh. Before he seemed to remember that there was only 10 minutes left to play. And France was already up by two goals. And... The French eventually did get their fourth in the dying minutes of the game, and they wound up winning four to one anyway. Uh, so it didn't even matter. So it kind of didn't matter. No. The fallout from the match was pretty steep. However, okay. Hidalgo had this to say on the incident after the match regarding the authorities: <laughs> "I am sure that if I had been dressed differently, or if I had been someone else, they would not have opposed my passage." Which doesn't sound great. No. Especially considering Fahad was wearing a kefia. The traditional pattern Arabic headscarf. Yeah. Um, Prince Fahad was fined for his behavior. A whopping 8,000 English pounds. Wow. Which would be about 28,000 pounds today. Shockingly, not a massive amount of money for a member of Kuwait's royal family. No. (laughs) Crazy how that turns out. The harshest punishment fell onto the shoulders of the referee, Miroslav Stupar who was banned from refereeing international matches for life. What? Yeah. That's crazy. Yep. 
Oh my gosh. He never again refereed a FIFA match. That is insane. He went back home to the Soviet Union and continued to ref until 1991. But he had only been refing international matches for about five years. Um, and that happened, and he never again refed a FIFA match. Wow. Never, ever again. France advanced all the way to the semifinals of the World Cup, which was actually kind of a surprising result because yeah. people didn't think they would get that far. I th also think that people thought that Argentina specifically would do much better than they did in that World Cup than they did. So that's part of it too. This semifinal finish was a little bit foretelling of the success of France in 1984 when they won the European Championship. Yeah. Kuwait, however, fell to England, won to nothing, and exited their sole World Cup with not much but a controversy to show for it. Prince Fahad actually died in battle during what? the 1990 Iraq evasion of Kuwait. What? While attempting to defend Dasman Palace. So, eight years later, Prince Fahad died. Wow. In a, pretty sure, a gun battle. Are you laughing? Laughing I'm death? coughing. Oh. I'm not laughing. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. I was going to say. <laughs> oh, dude. That's kind of shitty of you. No, no, not laughing. Okay. All right. Just making sure. Um, There is one kind of strange final loose end to this story. And it's not even really like a conclusion of the story. Think of it more like a like an epilogue. Okay. Michelle Platini. Platini. Oh, gosh. Platini retired from all soccer in 1987. He, he played his last match for France against Iceland on April 29th of that year. However, after his retirement, he did play in one official match. Coming out of retirement for one day, ironically, to represent Kuwait. What? In an international friendly against the Soviet Union. Platini did not have any ancestry relating to Kuwait at all, nor did he ever live in Kuwait. No. He did not have Kuwait citizenship. He did not have a Kuwaiti passport. Yeah. Apparently, the emir of Kuwait invited Platini to play for Kuwait, and Platini accepted the invitation. And everybody was just like, cool, bet. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. Sounds sick. You don't question it. Do it. <laughs> Do it. Platini accepted the invitation, and he came on for the final 21 minutes of the game in Kuwait colors. Uh, who allowed this to happen? No idea. But I thought it was a fun end to the story, which is now over. <laughs> that is the story of Prince Fahad, Kuwait's golden generation, yeah. and the mysterious changed call from yeah. the 1982 World Cup. Weird, man. A couple sources for the story. Um, Ali Khaled for the Arab News, First Post Sports, The Guardian, and Simon Rice for The Independent. Very nice. Definitely one of the stranger stories. Yeah, very, very weird. And I had come upon that story a while ago while I was researching Deadball Brothers stories. Uh -huh. But most of what I could find was... Like, just a paragraph yeah. that said, this is kind of weird. <laughs> the Prince of Kuwait came onto the field. Yeah. The referee changed a call, and Kuwait still lost anyway. Yeah. And that's kind of the end of it. And I was like, well, that is a funny, weird story, but I don't know if that's a that there's enough there for mm. a Deadball Brothers story. And then I kind of was like, ah, I'm going to dig more into this and see what I can find. Yeah. And I was kind of shocked at how good 
that Kuwait team was. Yeah. That Kuwait team, I watched the highlights of their games. That Kuwait team could ball. They were like, solid. They yeah. were putting together some very good performances. In fact, they were lucky. They were very unlucky not to beat Czechoslovakia. They had at least one breakaway where they hit post. Oh, wow. And a couple more that yeah. were near misses kind of deals or good saves. Um, yeah, Kuwait was a good team. And I feel like you never hear about them. I mean, much in the same way as you, you rarely hear much of anything at all about mm-hmm. Middle Eastern soccer. Yeah. Um, I think part of that has to do with I mean, just the stigma of the Middle East living in a Western country, and especially living in the United States, who has been militarily involved in the Middle East for literally our entire lives. Yeah. There hasn't been a moment where they have not been in the Middle East in some form or fashion. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting. I thought that the Kuwait golden generation deserved a little bit more due than I think that they got. And that I I think that they deserve a little bit more due about that World Cup than what is typically told about that World Cup about yeah. them. Because usually you just hear, yeah, the prince walked their on prince the field. walked out, yeah. And the referee changed a call and they yeah. got banned. And that was that. Yeah. And I think, I think that, I mean, that is a weird and interesting story. But I think that their team deserved a little bit more credit yeah, than that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you, you took the time to dig through it and... And do their team justice because the teammates didn't. I mean, the team themselves, the squad, did not do anything wrong. The squad. The squad. They didn't no. do anything wrong. They were just playing what the ga- the only game that they knew how to play. And listen, if I'm one of the Kuwait players and I look up into the stands and I see the prince of my country saying, "Hey, get off the field." I'm getting off the field. Yeah, you don't question it. I'm not questioned. No yeah. questions. Because I, I value my life. <laughs> if I'm playing in England and Prince Harry comes down or, or, or Prince William comes down to the field and says, hey, get off the field. I'm getting off the field. I don't know. I if might... I'm living in any country that has a prince and the prince comes down and says, hey, get off the field, I'm probably getting off the field. Well, what, what, what are Prince William, what's Prince William going to do? You know, He doesn't I, he, have any power. He's got – okay. Whoa, well, well – He's got yeah. a royal guard. He's got tons of people in big, tall hats that are willing to kill for him. Yes, but he can't say something like, get off the field. He can't do that. No. He would never. I, okay, he would never, yes. But could he not do that? I think he could do that. I mean, he, he might, but what is he, he going to do if you don't? He would do know? it, and people, I think, would oblige him in mm-hmm. England. But then there would be, like, fallout. Like, there would be, Parliament would be pissed, and there yeah. would be a whole to-do about it, and there would be issues and sanctions and, and bloody blah But I think that people would do it. If there are any people from England who uh, have a better insight You think on... that Harry Kane wouldn't immediately do exactly what Prince William would tell him to do? I don't know. Harry Kane bleeds England. No, I think England. Harry Kane would want to stay out on the field because... He has an obsession with scoring goals. This brings me... be like, uh, I wish I could get off the field, but that means me not scoring goals. This brings me to my next point. Uh, there was uh, a tweet from an account I follow, the Plastics SG, who is a uh, all kind of all female slash LGBT supporters group um, in MLS kind yeah. of thing. And they said, uh, we're playing the worst game of Fuck, Mary Kill. It's Harry Kane, Jeremy, Jamie Vardy, and, and Harry Maguire. Brutal. Who you got? I, I'm not playing. It's easy. Game. The, the, the answer is easy. Come what's, on. What's the answer? You kill Jamie Vardy. Okay. Because Jamie Vardy's trash and he looks like a rat. Um, uh, yeah, I guess. You fuck Harry Maguire. 
Okay. And you marry Harry Kane. Okay. Because he'll be devoted for, to you, just like he's devoted to England. It doesn't matter if you can't understand what he's saying. Oh my gosh. It's easy. The answers to these questions are easy. I think we should uh, end the podcast. All right. <laughs> On we'll that end the note. Podcast. If, <laughs> if you want to keep supporting our nonsense, you can follow us anywhere really on social media we're at deadball pod on facebook twitter and instagram and as always you can leave us a rating and review on apple Podcasts. it helps us out it games the algorithm algorithm a little bit more people get to see our podcast the more people that see our podcast and listen to our podcast and importantly download our podcast the more opportunities that we get so we would really, really appreciate if you could do that. Drew, we also have the Gmail account. We do have a Gmail account, deadballpod at gmail.com for any questions, concerns, any stories you would like the Brothers Deadball to look into. Um, it's right there for you at your, at your disposal. At your leisure. And we respond to you at our leisure. Which, which is extreme. Sometimes it can be pretty lengthy. Some extensive leisure <laughs> that we are experiencing. But as always, thank you so, so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. For this week, my name is Adam Whitaker-Snavely. And I'm Drew. I'm going to finish this whiskey. Bye-bye now. Bye.